Well, good morning, fellowship. Thanks for uh, having me here as a guest speaker today. Um, I'll just segue with Rob. This is a picture of the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, kind of right on the shoulder, the left shoulder of this image is the place called Capernaum, where we would see the first of the disciples to be called, which is going to happen in our text today. So it's just always kind of fun to see the image and to uh, be able to picture in your mind where this is happening. All right, well, before we launch into our text from this morning, uh, I want to briefly recap where we've been in the last couple of weeks in the book of Mark. Um, just last week, we witnessed the baptism of Jesus, and we heard the divine annunciation, which accompanied the baptism, sort of affirming Jesus' status. Uh, we've also uh, seen that Jesus was driven by the Spirit of the Lord into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Now, we're only a few weeks into the book of Mark, um, but you've prob probably already picked up something distinctive about Mark's literary style. Uh, when we get to the story of the temptation of Jesus, uh, it's very brief. It merely says he was tempted. That's it. Uh, in other gospels, we've got wonderful detail about this temptation of Jesus. Uh, we learn you know, what Satan said to Jesus and then how he responded. And then Satan said this to Jesus, and here's how Jesus responded. Well, you've got none of that detail in Mark three words. He was tempted. And that's it. Uh, Mark has what seems to be a very abrupt literary style. Uh, it's almost like he's in a hurry when he wrote his gospel. Um, just to, to kind of give scale to how Mark differs from some of the other gospels, if you compare Mark to the other synoptics, to, to Matthew and to Luke, uh, Mark is about 11,000 words in length. Uh, Matthew and Luke, respectively, are 18,000 and 19,000 words long. They're about 70% longer than Mark, okay? So there's going to be times as we're going through this sermon series, looking at the book of Mark, where we'll be coming up in a story and you'll be saying to yourself, oh, I, I know this, I know what's coming, and you'll feel like the details that you're anticipating don't emerge from the story, and the reason being is just that Mark seems to be a little, he doesn't mince words, he's a little shorter in the way that he tends to describe some of the encounters uh, of Jesus. One of the cool things to do in Mark, however, uh, is to be watching out for the details that Mark provides in his gospel that none of the other uh, gospel authors include in their accounts. And in fact, we're going to see one example of that in our text today. All right, so in our text today, if you don't have your Bibles open, please do so. Uh, turn to Mark chapter 1. Uh, I always like to have the Bible open as we're going through this. What we're going to see in our text today is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And the men that he will call today uh, will become really the hub of his earthly ministry. Now, the names of these 12 disciples, the 12 men who would become the, the followers of Jesus, the names of these men are highly esteemed in our culture today. Um, why is that? Why do we highly regard the names of these 12 men? Well, these are your, these are your big brothers. These are your big brothers. Every one of you in this room can trace your spiritual lineage back to one of these 12 guys. And so as a result of that, we revere their names. Uh, think about all the possible names that you could give to a male child at birth. Uh, I was actually Googling this this morning, waiting for the beginning of service. I Googled uh, how many male names are available to give to a child. You know, you, know, you can buy those baby books where you're trying to figure out, well, what am I going to name my son or my daughter. 
I Googled it, and I saw one website that said the thousand most common boy names in America. So there's at least a thousand names you could give to a boy. There's probably many thousands of names, but when you think about all the available names you could give to a boy at birth, would you agree with me that there's a disproportionate amount of names given to male children that would be the name of one of the 12 disciples? How frequently do we hear names in our culture? Or how many men in this room are named Peter, are named James, John, Thomas, Andrew, Nathan, Matthew? These are prevalent names in our culture. Now, some of the disciples' names, Thaddeus, Bartholomew, some of these didn't get a lot of traction. I get you. But, but some of these names are very, very popular. Why? These 12 men would change the world. Did you know that eight of our first 11 U.S. presidents bore the name of one of the 12 disciples? Eight of the first 11. Guys, these men were world changers. That's why we highly regard and highly revere their names. And it is the calling of these first disciples, and it is the authority behind this calling that we're going to read about in today's text. So, In the book of uh, Mark, chapter 1, let's start reading on verse 16. It says, As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately after they left their nets and followed him. Sorry, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were also in the boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them and left their father Zebedee, by the way, it's just fun to say Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and they went away to follow him. Right? A couple of observations just on this very first section of the text. You might think that a group of men that Jesus would handpick to be his followers, these would have to be a highly educated really talented, highly qualified group of individuals, right? Because if you're putting together an organization and you've got big objectives, that's what you would do, right? For those of you in the room that maybe have hiring responsibilities at work, your job is to bring people onto the team of your organization. You would agree with me that when you're trying to bring people onto the team, you are looking for the brightest and the best, You want the people most qualified to do the job and who also have a resume to prove that they can do it. Well, what strikes me in the text is that Jesus seemingly does the opposite of that. Now, he doesn't go into the big city. He doesn't travel down to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to the big city and summon his first disciples from among the intellectual elites, the highly educated people in the land. Nope, doesn't do that. Get this, he travels to the sticks. And he recruits his first followers out of some unusual, obscure fishing village on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. This would be like you or I traveling to West Virginia, to coal miner country, to to forestry region, to pull your first disciples out of there. Now, I was expecting some some pushback, right? Don't get on me if you're from West Virginia or you, you, you revere West Virginia. I think you know the point I'm trying to make. Galilee... Capernaum, this was not an area known for more than blue-collar stuff. And this is where Jesus goes to recruit his first and arguably his most important followers. Very, very interesting. 
If you're going to assemble the dream team, the people that you're going to rely on to, to bring forth your effort, your initiative to the world, is this how you do it? This is how Jesus does it. Now put up a verse on your screen, 1 Corinthians 1, chapters 20, or verses 26 and 27. I think we can get this on your screen. It says this, Consider your calling, says Paul. There are not many of you wise according to the flesh. But God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Guys, this is how God works. This is how he operates. If you look back in the book of Kings, you see that um, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal in a duel of sorts. He's outnumbered 450 to 1, and he's victorious. If you go back to Judges chapter 7, you see a story of a man named Gideon. Gideon's the commander of a sizable army, 29,000 strong. God looks at his army and says, too many, too big, too strong. And God whittles it down and whittles it down and whittles it down and whittles it down until it's almost comical in size. And then God says, now you go to war. God decides to send speech-impaired Moses to approach Pharaoh and make a persuasive case for the release of the Hebrews. Yeah, good idea. Let's send stuttering Moses to make the case for the release of the Hebrews against the full strength of Egypt. Good idea. And let's, let's, let's call our disciples Jesus from the area where more guys than not probably are named Bubba, all right? This is how God operates, okay? It's counterintuitive, but let me ask you this. Why does he do it this way? Why is this the way that God operates? Why does God not use the strength and the talent of this world to accomplish his purposes? What are your thoughts? Why does he favor using the weak? Thoughts? Pardon? It shows his strength. You got it. When God is doing a great work among his people, it will be very clear that it's God doing a great work among his people. You read in uh, Acts chapter 4 of when John and Peter are witnessing before hostile crowd, and it says, uh, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized that these were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. Yep. So... God favors using the weak. It is his way of operating. All right, second observation. When I was preparing for this message today, I read through the text numerous times. And whenever I see a response of someone to Jesus, I always kind of ask the question, would I have done it the same way? Would I have responded the same way? And something really leaped off the page in this first section of text when we see the disciples' response. You see, in verse 18... Uh, Jesus is calling Simon Peter and Andrew. And then again in verse 20, it's, we see that he's calling John and James. Both of those verses start with the word immediately. It's sort of like Jesus says, follow me, and then wham, the nets fall to the ground. And then Zebedee, the named father, is in the boat looking at his sons. And he's going, where are they off to now? Like it seems, it seems really abrupt it seems, it seems strangely irrational that Jesus would beckon these people to come and then boom, they're gone. And I, I looked at that and said, would I, would I have followed if he just said, follow me? And that challenged me. Well, 
Mark's brevity in this account would seem to suggest that this is literally the first time that these men had met Jesus or had heard from Jesus, but that's actually not the case. Uh, We've got to consult the other Gospels to get a more rounded out account of actually what happened on this day. You don't need to turn there, but in Luke chapter 5, we kind of have a parallel reading, a parallel rendering of the exact same story. And what we learn from this account in Luke Uh, chapter 5, is that immediately before Jesus called the disciples, he had approached the uh, shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, and he told Peter to, he asked Peter, hey, can can we use your boat? Can you put it out into the water so that I can teach these people? And Jesus is speaking to a group of people really from the water's edge of the Sea of Galilee. And right after Jesus finishes teaching, the the boat comes in and and, uh, he says to Peter, hey, Peter, um, why don't you take your boat out into deep water and let your nets down for a catch. I think you know the story. What happens after this? Do you remember? So Peter responds to Jesus and says, but master, we've been working all night long. We haven't caught a darn thing. The fish aren't biting today. And then he says, but if it is your will, we will take the boats out and we will let the nets down. And what happens? Fish are jumping into the net. In fact, according to Luke's account of this, the nets were so full of fish that Peter and Andrew, they had to call their partners in the fishing business, John and James, over from another boat to help pull in the fish. In fact, there were so many fish in the net that the nets began to tear. And it says in the text that there were so many fish that literally two boats were filled to capacity when they finally hauled the catch into the boat. Okay, so when Mark in his shortened account says that John and James were repairing the nets, that's kind of the context of it. The the miracle of Jesus took a bit of a toll on the fishing tackle, so to speak. So when these men are repairing their nets and Jesus is calling them, it's very top of mind. There's something different about this guy. Now, When they decide to follow Jesus, I think they've seen enough of this man to know that when he calls, there's an authority about him that they realize they should follow. They probably haven't put it all together in their heads yet, but they've seen enough to realize that when this guy calls, I'm going. All right? Now, moving forward in the text today, this perceived authority of Jesus that the disciples are kind of piecing together at the edge of the Sea of Galilee We're going to see this develop further as soon as Jesus comes in from the shoreline and he heads straight to the synagogue where he's going to teach. Pick it up in your Bibles on verse 21. It says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and he began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into the surrounding district of Galilee. 
Well, to those in the synagogue, it also becomes quickly apparent that there is something different about this guy. Now, in this day and age, you need to realize it was common or it was acceptable for any competent male that was knowledgeable in the scriptures to come into the synagogue on the Sabbath and state his perspective, to state his opinion on the scriptures. This was commonplace. But the way that this was done is that the teacher would typically ground their opinions in some established basis of authority. So what, would, what you'd see would be, um, according to Rabbi Gamaliel, blah, blah, blah. Or according to the prophet Micah, blah, 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 right? Someone would quote another source of authority to render their opinions, to render their perspective. And although we don't know what Jesus taught, we do know that Jesus didn't do this because he wasn't using the lens of a prophet. He wasn't using the lens of a rabbi to speak about God. He was using his own perspective. And the text says that it stopped people in their tracks. Verse 22 says, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching as one having authority. Again, this perceived authority would have an opportunity now to be validated. And I don't think it's any coincidence at all that suddenly out of this uh, audience in the synagogue, a man would emerge uh, who was deeply influenced by a malevolent spirit. And his ailment was very quickly identified when the spirit residing within the man manifested and spoke directly to Jesus. And Jesus confronts the evil spirit within this man and using nothing more than the power of his voice, commands the demon to be silent and to depart. There's no hocus pocus in this exorcism. I don't want to be irreverent, but you don't see Jesus going to the corner of the synagogue to grab some holy water and sprinkling it on this man or, or reading the Old Testament in Latin. You know, Hollywood loves to, you know, sort of glamorize and make all kinds of drama around exorcisms. Jesus does none of that. He simply speaks to him. Be silent, be still, depart. Shut upeth and get outeth, I think is the Greek in this one, right? Several chapters later, Jesus would actually use nearly the same language to calm a storm. Be silent, be still. Well, I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to delve too deeply into the exorcism itself. Um, I don't think we want to get too deep into the theology of this. Um, but I have to tell you, every time I read a story of the disciples or Jesus overwhelming a demonic spirit in the New Testament, I've got to tell you, I'm really interested by these readings. Um, when I was in seminary, I took an elective class uh, called uh, Current Issues in Spiritual Warfare. And it was both chilling and fascinating. I loved it. It was really, really interesting. I don't want to get too deep into the theology of this, but let me, let me speak to the context of what happened on this morning because if you miss the context of this, you're missing the message of what's going on here. You need to know that before the arrival of Jesus... This type of an encounter, this addressing and this banishing of an evil spirit from a person, this just didn't happen. It didn't happen, okay? Uh, sometimes we read our New Testaments and we see all these encounters between Jesus or the disciples and evil spirits, and we think this kind of thing was, was commonplace at this time. Absolutely not. You need to realize that the display of Je by Jesus of this authority in the synagogue this morning that this was absolutely unheard of prior to this moment. Scour your Old Testament. Go through it, front to back, your entire Old Testament, and look for any example 
of an evil spirit being driven out by a person. There's nothing there. You can't find it. There's one really obscure story in 1 Samuel 16 that talks about how Saul was vexed by an evil spirit and how when, uh, when David played the harp, uh, the spirit would depart him. But this is hardly another person casting out an evil spirit from another person. It was nothing like that. This literally was the first time this has ever been seen before. All right, so when Jesus shows up and speaks to this demon and this man, telling him to be silent and to depart, those in attendance, it's not just like, oh, we've never seen this before. It's like, we've never even heard of this before. Who is this guy? It, they would have been dumbfounded at this display of power and authority. Well, as we look at this section of the text, remember, we're just now, we're in Mark chapter 1. We're just kind of getting going. We're just beginning to reveal who Jesus is, who he was, what his ministry would be. He would perform many, many miracles in the region. He'd teach at many synagogues throughout the region over the coming three years. His ministry would unfold over a three-year period. And this is, this is just the outset. We're just getting going. So while the disciples are still kind of putting the pieces together in their head, trying to figure out the, the answer to the question, who is Jesus? We can come up with that answer because we've got it all right here. Everything for us is looking back in the rearview mirror to be able to put together the idea or for solve the riddle of who was Jesus. But I've got to tell you that the question that would be on the lips of those who met Jesus on the water's edge this day or who heard him teach in the synagogue on this day, the question that absolutely would have been on their lips is the same question that should be on our lips as we investigate this text. And that question is this, who is Jesus? The demons fear him. A voice from heaven announces him at his baptism. Fish jump into his net at his wish, at his beck and call. People drop their livelihood and leave their families to follow him? Who is this guy? Guys, the answer to the question, who is Jesus? This is arguably the most important question that you will ever answer in your life. And I'm not overstating that. The answer to the question, who is Jesus, is the pivotal question of all time. You see, the Bible says in red letter words, I go to John chapter 8, 24. John says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The decision that you make about Jesus' identity will determine where you will spend your eternity. So it is no small question. Was he a teacher? Was he a prophet? Was he a rabbi? Or was he more than that? We need to come up with the answer to that question. And the Bible presents him very clearly as being much more than a man. But we need to arrive at that decision on our own. Now, once we come from this question, who is Jesus, I believe this leads us kind of inexorably to a follow-up question. There's another question that's presented before all of us. And that is this. If you understand Jesus' identity, right, then what do we do about that? The question is, what then is my response? What is my response once I rightly understand Jesus' identity? If he is Lord, if he is God, then we need to realize, as the disciples did, that everything in this world yields to his authority. 
Everything yields to his authority. And that includes you, and that includes me. We yield to Jesus' authority. Now, in, in American culture, this message doesn't play real well. We as a people group are strangely averse to the idea of bending a knee to authority. I'm not sure if you'd agree with me on that assessment or not, but as I look at our culture, we are so very individualistic. We celebrate the people who express themselves in their own individual way. We make devices that we fall in love with called the iPad and the iPhone. It's all about me. I want it my way. We sing songs like, I did it my way, right? As a nation, we began by separating from our oppressors in England because we wanted to be independent. We wanted to do it our way. And when you look at our entertainment world, when you look at our arts, when you look at our sports, when you look at our politics, we seem to celebrate, we seem to be drawn to people who are the mavericks, who are the rogues, the people who are proudly individualistic. We love things like end zone dances, stuff like that, after a touchdown in football. There seems to be a draw towards individual expression because we love individuality in this country. And that kind of goes a little bit against the grain of bowing a knee to a Lord and a king named Jesus. So there's something in the American psyche that sort of bristles, that sort of pushes back a little bit at the idea that we should acknowledge Jesus' authority and his, and his kingship. But beyond our cultural um, bent towards a lack or a, a, a an aversion to authority, I think for some of us, there's another reason why some of us might struggle to recognize Jesus' authority in our lives. When you think about when you have an encounter with Christ and you acknowledge his identity, it, the time now then is to submit yourself to him, not just as Savior, thank you, Lord, for forgiving my sins and for granting me uh, citizenship in heaven. We acknowledge him as Savior, but we also need to acknowledge him as Lord. And so there's a process called sanctification whereby we put before the Lord every part of our life and we ask him to become ruler over this part of our life. Lord, I submit to you this part of my life. I submit to you this part of my life. I submit to you this part of my life. And I, sometimes, sometimes we hold stuff back from him because we don't want to give him every part of our life. I think for some of us, there's a fear that if we truly give Jesus the authority that he is due, if we truly render every part of our life to Jesus' kingship and to his authority, that we're worried that he might mess with us, so to speak. If, if I yield everything fully to Jesus, he might take away some of that stuff in my life that I really enjoy, and I don't want that. Uh, in our bad thinking, we kind of think of God being this cosmic killjoy who's sort of watching to see if we're having fun and then reaching in and intervening to take away that which is causing us to have fun. Guys, that's horrible theology. Horrible. God loves you. Jesus loves you. And you can trust him with not just part of your life, you can trust him with all of your life. So if you're worried about, man, I, I, I don't want to give Jesus authority and control over my career because he, he might not let me have that promotion I've been seeking. Or I don't want to give Jesus authority over my finances because, well, then I might not have enough for that cool TV I hope for. There can be a whole lot of reasons where you're holding back from allowing Jesus to have control over your life 
because you think that bad stuff might come. It may not be the life that you want if you fully yield to him. And guys, like a parent, Jesus loves you in the way that a father does. Yes, he wants to bless you abundantly. He wants to give you the desires of your heart, but there will be times that he will hold back because not every desire of your heart will be good for you. Right? There will be times when he intentionally withholds because he realizes that it won't, it'll be harmful for you or it'll prevent the development of your character in the way that he wants you to develop and grow. Now, as we go through the book of Mark, I want you to be doing something for me. I want you to look at what happens to the people whose lives intersect with Jesus' authority. And I want you to see what happens to these people. Does God reach down and take away the fun stuff from their life? Does God reach down and hurt them or hold them back in some way, shape, or form? Or does he choose to bless them in ways that they couldn't imagine? You see, just in our short account today, just in our short Bible passage today in Mark, we see that Jesus, to two, a group of fishermen, he fills up the nets so fully that two boats were filled to capacity. He blessed these fishermen abundantly. And to another man in the synagogue who didn't have the ability to ask for help, Jesus saw the ailment, he reached in, and he healed the man and performed a surgery, for lack of a better word, that no doctor could have done to make this man well. Jesus exercises his authority to bless and to bless abundantly. So as we're going through Mark, I want you to be watching how does Jesus use his authority and what happens to the people when he exercises it. Guys, he loves you. He loves you. So when you think about the different areas of your life where you have surrendered control to Christ, is there something over here that you have not brought to him? Is there an area in your life where you have not yielded control to Jesus because you've been worried about how it might turn out if you did? Well, I'm going to pray in a moment, and I'm going to invite you guys, as we pray, to just survey your life this morning. Take a quiet moment and just look over the different areas of your life and ask yourself, have I, have I yielded control to Jesus in every area of my life, or are there some areas where I've been choosing to be the commander of my own ship, and I haven't given him control of the wheel? Your life will be better if it is fully surrendered to Christ. Okay, let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for my brothers and my sisters who have gathered here today. I thank you for your word, Lord, and I thank you for how it challenges us. I thank you for the examples that we see of how the disciples responded, how those in the synagogue responded. Jesus, you shook the world when you incarnated and you came to it. 2,000 years ago. And Father, I thank you that we have a record of how you impacted the culture in that time and how everything acknowledged who you were rightly. Jesus, we submit to you. We acknowledge you not just as, um, not just as the Prince of Peace, but as our Lord of Lords. We thank you, Father, for the way that you have reached into us, into our world, and you've saved us. You've provided a means for salvation. And Father, I just ask you for the trust for the confidence for all of us this morning to yield more fully to you. For those of us, Lord, that haven't done that fully in some way, if there's areas of uh, lives of people in attendance this morning who haven't fully bowed a knee to you and to your kingship, Lord, give us the confidence 
to do that rightly and the conviction to take care of that business today. For it's in your wonderful name, Lord, that we pray. Amen. Guys, as you go out today, enjoy a lower temperature with lower humidity. This is one of those Sundays we've been looking forward to for months now. We finally got a, a, a good day where uh, you can be outside and not be sweating like crazy. But take some time over lunch, over dinner at some time today to just talk through with a significant other or with a family member or a friend the question, are there areas of my life where I have not fully submitted control to the Lordship of Christ? All right. Go now and be blessed. Have a great Sunday.